You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to the 160th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all recall, last week we set the stage for the Battle of Gaines Mill, which took place on Friday, June 27, 1862. Gaines Mill will be the third battle of the Seven Days Campaign, following the battles of Oak Grove and Mechanicsville. The Battle of Mechanicsville on Thursday, June 26th, had been a badly bungled affair by the Confederates, but, to borrow a phrase from Nathan Bedford Forrest, it was enough to put the skier into George B. McClellan. With the Battle of Mechanicsville, Robert E. Lee seized the initiative from McClellan, not because the fighting that day resulted in a great battlefield victory for the rebels, it didn't, but Robert E. Lee seized the initiative from McClellan because... Well, because George McClellan was George McClellan, and purely by the fact Lee threw an offensive punch, Little Mac that night took counsel of his fears and allowed himself to be defeated in his own mind. And having thus surrendered the initiative to Lee, McClellan would spend the rest of the Seven Days campaign simply trying to save his army from the hammer blows that the Confederate commander continued to rain upon it. As we mentioned last time, on Friday morning, the Confederates discovered that the Federals had abandoned their Beaver Dam Creek line, and they immediately set off to follow the Yankees. Lee's offensive was now a day behind schedule, but with the Union force north of the Chickahominy falling back, Lee's strategy could still be successful if all went according to his plan today. But all would not go according to plan that Friday, quite simply because Lee's plan was wrong. Lee still assumed that McClellan was going to fall back north of the Chickahominy to protect his supply line, which ran back to White House Landing on the Pamunkey River and then out to the York River. And so, assuming that Little Mac was thus withdrawing eastward to protect White House Landing, Lee looked at his map and saw that the next best defensive position available to the Yankees appeared to be Powhite Creek, where the Gaines's farm and mill stood. Lee expected the Federals would fight with the exact same defensive plan as they had on Thursday. That is, the Yankees would line up their troops and artillery behind Powhite Creek, facing west. Based on that assumption, he intended to do on Friday what Stonewall Jackson's late arrival on Thursday had prevented. 
get around the Union forces' right flank and come in behind their line, forcing them to retreat again. As the enemy retreated, Lee would use the divisions of James Longstreet and A.P. Hill to push them onto the waiting brigades and batteries of Stonewall Jackson and D.H. Hill. Lee was sending Jackson and Hill to Old Cold Harbor, which he expected to be well beyond the Federals' right flank. But Lee hadn't counted on McClellan so quickly losing his nerve and abandoning his supply line and his grand campaign to capture Richmond. And Lee didn't count on Fitz John Porter, the commander of the Army of the Potomac's Fifth Corps, hunkering down on high ground, not behind Powhite Creek, but a half mile farther east behind Boston Swamp, which Lee didn't even know existed because of faulty Confederate maps. So on Friday, June 27th, Lee was putting into motion a plan that was flawed the moment he conceived it, which meant he would have to spend the day trying to adapt and improvise and revise his strategy on the fly. Early on Friday morning, once the Confederates discovered that the Federals were no longer behind Beaver Dam Creek, the pursuing rebels skirmished with some Union rear guard elements. Lee's army north of the Chickahominy took four roads that led eastward. As we mentioned before, Lee expected to find the enemy drawn up in a new defensive line behind Powhite Creek, some three and a half miles to the east of Beaver Dam Creek. According to Lee's plan, Stonewall Jackson and D.H. Hill would maneuver around the Federals' right flank, forcing the enemy to retreat. As the Yankees pulled back, Longstreet and A.P. Hill would press them, pushing them into Jackson and D.H. Hill, who would have cut in behind the Federals. So in essence, once the Yankees were flushed out from behind Powhite Creek, Lee intended for Jackson and D.H. Hill to be the anvil, while Longstreet and A.P. Hill were the hammer. The retreating Federals would be crushed between the two Confederate forces. Jackson and D.H. Hill would march to Old Cold Harbor, a tiny hamlet named for an inn for travelers. Lee expected that once they reached Old Cold Harbor, Jackson and Hill would be well beyond the right flank of the Union force arrayed behind Powhide Creek. While Jackson and D.H. Hill marched to Old Cold Harbor, A.P. Hill would cross over the previous day's battlefield and advance to the Walnut Church crossroads. Longstreet would set off following Hill, but then turn off to the south on the river road, which ran parallel to the Chickahominy. As A.P. Hill's troops marched to the Walnut Church crossroads, they were taken under fire by artillery to their left. Those shells came from guns belonging to Stonewall Jackson, who was finally making his presence felt on the battlefield by accidentally shooting at fellow Confederates. Shortly before 10 a.m., A.P. Hill rode up to Walnut Church and found Jackson there. Hill had only spoken with Stonewall for a few minutes when Robert E. Lee rode up. Hill greeted Lee, then excused himself and rode off with his troops down the Telegraph Road. Lee and Jackson dismounted and walked and talked in the shade of some cedar trees near the church. Then, while Lee sat on a stump, Jackson stood before him and Lee went over the day's plan. None of their staffs overheard what was said, but almost certainly Lee was trying to make sure that Jackson knew exactly what was expected of him on Friday so as to avoid a repeat of Thursday's confusion. At 11 a.m., Lee and Jackson wrapped up their discussion and went their separate ways. 
Lee rode down the Telegraph Road to Selwyn, the home of local planner William Hogan, which he intended to use as his headquarters. After conferring there with A.P. Hill and Longstreet shortly before noon, Lee waited, expecting the battle to commence in less than an hour at Powhite Creek. In fact, shortly before noon, the first Confederate troops did encounter the new Union defensive line, but it wasn't A.P. Hill's troops, and it wasn't where Lee expected. You see, D.H. Hill had made good time marching to Old Cold Harbor, and as he advanced two brigades south from that point, maneuvering to get in the rear of the Federals, he unexpectedly encountered a line of Yankees facing north, ready and waiting for him. The Union troops in front of Hill belonged to George Sykes' division, and there turned out to be a personal interest to this meeting for both men, since D.H. Hill and Sykes had been roommates at West Point in the 1840s. Here, Hill unexpectedly met significant resistance that wasn't supposed to be there, according to Lee's plan. After a sharp exchange of artillery fire, in which the rebel guns were roughly handled by the Union batteries across the way, Hill realized that the Federals blocking his path were present in substantial numbers, so he decided to fall back to Old Colt Harbor, deploy his division, and wait for Stonewall Jackson to arrive but it would, like the day before, be a lengthy wait. Robert E. Lee was unaware that D.H. Hill had unexpectedly run into resistance on his flanking march because an atmospheric acoustical anomaly called an acoustic shadow meant the sound of the cannons never reached Selwyn, less than four miles away. Lee also remained in the dark because Hill never sent a messenger to Army headquarters with the news that he had run into trouble. Instead, the first indication that Lee received that the Federals were not where he expected them to be came when troops of A.P. Hill's lead brigade under Maxie Gregg encountered only slight opposition at Gaines Mill on Powhite Creek. When Gregg forced a crossing of the creek at the bridge at the mill, the Yankee skirmishers fell back and disappeared into the woods to the east. As Gregg continued another three-fourths of a mile to New Cold Harbor, he moved his brigade quickly down the slope toward the heretofore unknown Boson Swamp, and his men came under heavy artillery fire that broke their momentum and caused them to fall back. As Gregg rallied his men, he sent a message back saying that he had found the missing Union line arrayed behind a mystery stream. From the Watt House on the plateau that rose beyond Boson Swamp, Fitzjohn Porter had seen the Confederates advanced against his right. This was D.H. Hill, and against his center, this was Maxie Gregg. And with his field glasses, he could see more of A.P. Hill's division coming up. Turning his glasses to the Union left, he could see the dust clouds raised by Longstreet's marching troops. Realizing the action was about to heat up, Porter sent a message to McClellan at about 2 p.m., requesting he be reinforced by Slocum's division. As you guys may recall from the last episode, earlier on Friday, McClellan had decided to send Slocum north of the Chickahominy to reinforce Porter, but then Little Mac countermanded that order because he was fearful that the rebels south of the river were about to launch an attack. Now, though, after receiving Porter's request, McClellan changed his mind again, and within the hour, Slocum's men were on the march. Of course, keep in mind that Fitzjohn Porter 
was just asking for the minimum reinforcements he thought necessary to fulfill his mission north of the river. Remember, Porter mistakenly believed he was, at all hazards, to hold his ground north of the Chickahominy, while McClellan, he thought, was launching a potentially war-winning attack south of the river to capture Richmond. But rather than launching that crushing blow, McClellan was holed up at his headquarters south of the river in a completely defensive frame of mind. All the reports coming in from his generals that day convinced Little Mac that he was about to be attacked everywhere at once. On Friday, McClellan would never rouse himself to go out and visit the front lines and assess the situation for himself, but would instead remain at his headquarters hoping for the best but expecting the worst. Meanwhile, Robert E. Lee was displaying a very different style of leadership than Little Mac. When it became apparent that the main federal defensive line was not at Powhite Creek after all, Lee left Selwyn and joined A.P. Hill's division as it moved forward, groping for the enemy. As reports came in, Lee recognized that this new Union position was a strong one, and he concluded that McClellan had decided to commit to one big battle along this line. Lee believed that McClellan had moved the majority of his army north of the Chickahominy to this new position. Lee decided to commit all of his nearly 55,000 or so troops north of the river to breaking this enemy line and destroying the Army of the Potomac. Once Jackson and D.H. Hill made their presence felt at Cold Harbor, Lee believed Little Mac would have to shift eastward to protect his supply line, and once the Union troops made that movement, Lee expected they would be vulnerable to a crushing blow from Longstreet and A.P. Hill. But Lee, of course, was mistaken. Manning this new defensive line was not the bulk of McClellan's army, but merely one reinforced corps that was determined to hold its ground. This is significant since if McClellan really had as many troops north of the Chickahominy as Lee thought, say 60,000 or so, then Lee's decision to attack seems not just questionable, but downright reckless. As we'll see, Lee had a difficult enough time breaking through Fitz John Porter's line of fewer than 30,000 troops. On Friday, June 27th, if the Federals north of the river had been twice that number, as Lee assumed, then the seven days' battles would have likely been the three days' battles, as the attacking Confederates would have been slaughtered in front of Boson's Swamp. But luckily for the Army of Northern Virginia, Lee's reading of the tactical situation was wrong, and there weren't 60,000 Federals manning this new line. On Friday, if Lee wanted the greatest possible chance of breaking the enemy line, he needed to mass his artillery so that his batteries would be able to neutralize the Union guns across the way and potentially blow holes in the Yankee line, while a coordinated assault by his infantry divisions all along the line would have the greatest effect. But none of those things happened. The Confederates failed to mass their artillery. Instead, they chose to send their batteries into action one at a time as they came onto the field. This meant the rebel batteries would be heavily outgunned and rendered largely ineffective while suffering heavy casualties. Similarly, a series of mistakes, poor communication, and the general fog of war 
meant the Confederate infantry brigades attacked in piecemeal fashion with no sense of coordination until there was hardly any daylight left. The Confederate attacks weren't coordinated because Stonewall Jackson was late again. Once they heard the sounds of battle raging to the south, Lee expected that Jackson and D.H. Hill would offer support, so he sent A.P. Hill into Boson Swamp to drive the Federals there back while there was still enough daylight left to accomplish something substantial. Though there's some confusion as to just when Hill launched his assault, it seems he ordered his men to attack at about 2.30 that afternoon. It's hard to pinpoint precisely when this series of disjointed attacks by Hill's troops on the Union line took place, since historians don't always agree on where specific Confederate units were located or when they entered the fight. All agree, though, that Maxie Gregg's brigade was the first to venture into the fray, winning a toehold in the swamp, but unable to push any further because of the fierce Federal fire. The fighting was so severe in this sector that the 1st South Carolina Rifles of Gregg's Brigade lost 315 men, the largest loss of the day for any one regiment. A.P. Hill's troops were attacking the strong center of Fitzjohn Porter's line. Hill's six brigades fought on more than a mile-long stretch of the Swampy Creek and, with only a few brief exceptions, failed to penetrate any part of the Union line. Confederate artilleryman E. Porter Alexander observed that, quote, Everybody else seemed to stand still and let A.P. Hill's division wreck itself in splendid but vain and bloody isolated assaults. End quote. Attacking to the right of, and nearly simultaneously with Gregg, was Lawrence O'Brien Branch. But Branch sent the regiments of his brigade in with little coordination. The 7th and 37th North Carolina went in first, next to Gregg, and were forced to retreat by heavy enemy fire. As they fell back, Branch then sent in his remaining three regiments, but they fared no better. As evidence of the fierce Union fire, the battle flag of the 7th North Carolina was riddled with 32 bullet holes and witnessed the death of four men, including the regiment's colonel, who carried it that day. Another regimental commander wrote of Branch's disjointed attack and the stout enemy defense, quote, Nothing but the thickness of the woods saved us from total destruction. To Branch's right came Joseph Anderson's brigade without any artillery support at all. Anderson, along with two regiments of Charles W. Field's brigade, launched three different charges that failed to get across the stream. To Anderson's right was James Archer's brigade, Archer ordered his men into the fray after the attacks of Gregg, Branch, and Anderson had already passed their peak. Archer's men charged 500 yards through open fields down the slope to the stream, encountering a storm of enemy fire. Showing remarkable courage, the brigade managed to get within 20 yards of the Union defensive positions before finally breaking and retreating, with one Alabama regiment leaving its colors behind to be captured by the enemy. A.P. Hill had kept two of his brigades, Penders and Fields, in reserve. William Dorsey Pender's brigade was behind Branch. As Branch's men retreated and took cover, Pender launched his assault, which was likely just a few minutes after Anderson began his attack. Pender's movement benefited from the smoke and confusion of Branch's failed attack, and two of Pender's regiments, 
the 16th and 22nd North Carolina actually broke through the enemy's lines ever so briefly before Union reinforcements drove them back, stopping the forward momentum of the brigade. Pender's men rallied in the swamp, but were unable to advance again in the face of renewed federal defensive fire. Pender's brigade was retreating as Archer's was advancing, and almost at the same time, between the two, Charles W. Field's brigade launched its attack. Field fared no better than had Anderson or Archer, as he attacked three compact lines of Union defense just north of the Watts House. Field's retreat ended the first Confederate assault at the Battle of Gaines's Mill. It had lasted nearly two hours and had been conducted by A.P. Hill's division alone, which had not been Robert E. Lee's intention. No coordinated attack occurred because Stonewall Jackson did not arrive at the right place at the right time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Stonewall Jackson arrived nearly 90 minutes behind schedule because of another bad march. His guide, not being given any specific instructions, was leading Jackson by the shortest route to Old Cold Harbor. But then firing was heard ahead of them near Gaines Mill, as Maxie Gregg was originally forcing a crossing of lightly defended Powhart Creek. When Jackson asked the guide where the sound of battle was coming from, the man said he supposed it came from around Gaines Mill. Stonewall then demanded to know if the road they were on led there. The guide said it did, then on to Old Cold Harbor. With some heat, Jackson said he didn't want to go to Gaines's Mill, only to Old Cold Harbor, leaving Gaines's Mill to the right. So now, finally, Jackson was communicating to his guide that he wanted to conduct a flanking movement around Gaines's Mill. Realizing that Jackson had left out this vital piece of information when they started their march, the guide replied with equal heat that had he been told that in the first place, then, quote, I could have directed you aright. To comply with Lee's orders, Jackson realized his force would have to retrace their steps back to the old Cold Harbor Road. 
Stonewall seemed strangely resigned to the inevitable delay, and when the Reverend Dabney expressed concern about the time it would take to countermarch the column, Stonewall replied that they must trust to the providence of God that no mischief would result from it. When it became apparent that neither Jackson nor D.H. Hill was supporting A.P. Hill's attack on the enemy line, Lee decided there was nothing for it but to keep the pressure on and break the Union force defending the plateau behind the Swampy Creek. In for a penny, in for a pound, Lee felt the success of his entire campaign now hinged on driving McClellan's army off that high ground, regardless of how many enemy troops he had to overcome to do it. A.P. Hill's failed attacks had convinced Lee that McClellan was committed to battling it out right here, so Lee sent messengers to both Jackson and Longstreet to bring their men into the fight. At that time, Longstreet was on the west side of Powhite Creek, waiting for orders to attack, but hoping he would not have to. That was because he could look across to Boson Swamp and see a strong Union defensive line backed up by plenty of artillery. Longstreet realized that a frontal assault by his division against that line would be a bloody proposition. Word arrived from Lee late in the afternoon that Longstreet was to create a diversion in his front. Longstreet immediately sent four of his six brigades across Powhite Creek and into the woods on the other side, from where they could harass the Union defenders across the way on the other side of Boson Swamp. Some of Longstreet's brigades made their way across the extremely boggy ground in this sector and approached to within a hundred yards of the Union line before stopping and exchanging fire with the enemy. In this contest, though, the defenders gave better than they got, and the Union soldiers of Daniel Butterfield's brigade and Morrill's division had nothing to fear from Longstreet's feint. Not much time passed, however, before Longstreet received another message from Lee, this one urging him to do something more than create a diversion. And so Longstreet readied his entire division to make an assault on the Union line. He moved Richard's Anderson's and James Kemper's brigades over Powhite Creek to support the brigades that had already crossed over. As Longstreet was preparing his assault, he saw part of Jackson's command to the north launching an attack over the same ground previously used by A.P. Hill's troops. Longstreet decided to join that attack. This finally led to the day's first reasonably concentrated mass attack by the rebels against the Union line, but it was nearly 7 p.m., and daylight was fading fast. The troops Longstreet saw were the brigades of Evander Law and John Bell Hood from William H. Whiting's division, and their trek to the battlefield was a complicated story. Lee had sent an urgent message to Stonewall Jackson calling for troops, probably at the same time he had asked Longstreet for a diversion. The timing of these messages is difficult to determine exactly, Jackson, after marching and countermarching, had probably arrived at Old Cold Harbor Crossroads about 3 p.m. to rendezvous with D.H. Hill's division. At that point, Jackson was ahead of his last two divisions, Whiting's and Winder's, which were strung out on the road behind him, and he had lost touch with Ewell's leading division. When Jackson arrived at the Old Cold Harbor Crossroads, he was a bit puzzled by the situation. His orders, explained clearly to him by Lee only four hours earlier, had assumed that the Federals should be retreating across Jackson's front once they had given up their Powhite Creek line. Now, however, Stonewall discovered Federal troops facing him with strong artillery support. 
Jackson could also hear the intense sounds of battle coming from less than a mile to the west as A.P. Hill's brigades grappled with the center of the Union position at Boson Swamp. So the Union troops were obviously not retreating, yet Stonewall continued with his previous orders as if the situation had not changed at all. He hadn't received any new orders from Lee, so he directed D.H. Hill further to the east to be in a better position to attack the Yankees when they did retreat, and he sent a messenger back to hurry forward Whiting and Winder. Then he sent his chief engineer to report to Robert E. Lee. Unknown to Stonewall, Lee, wondering where Jackson was all this time, had sent his aide Walter Taylor to locate Stonewall. Lee wanted to let Jackson know that the plan had changed due to the unexpected location of the new enemy position at Boson Swamp, and so instead of making a flanking attack, Lee needed Jackson's troops to pitch in directly and help break the Union line. Jackson had ordered Ewell's division to take up position on D.H. Hill's right, but as Ewell was moving to comply, he met Walter Taylor, who told Ewell to march a little faster and a little farther west to A.P. Hill's assistance. At about 3.30, an hour or so into A.P. Hill's fight, Lee met Ewell on the telegraph road behind Hill's line. Lee instructed Ewell on where to put his three brigades into the fight, over almost exactly the same ground that Hill's division had gone over. Lee also sent Ewell's trusted staff officer, Campbell Brown, to locate the rest of Jackson's units and bring them forward to join in the battle. Following Lee's orders, Dick Ewell sent Arnold Elsie's brigade, Isaac Trimble's brigade, and Richard Taylor's brigade into the battle. Taylor's brigade was under the command of Colonel Isaac Seymour on June 27th because Taylor was sick. Because of the nature of the terrain and the confusion of being rushed directly into the fight, Ewell's three brigades ended up attacking one at a time and not in support of one another. Apparently Seymour went in first, whereas part of Elsie's and Trimble's brigades attacked later, with some of their regiments getting lost in the woods and not even taking part in the assault. In Seymour's brigade was Robert O. Wheat and his Louisianans, who had taken the coaling at the Battle of Port Republic. Here at Boson Swamp, Wheat and his men went forward into the teeth of the Union defenses. A devastating storm of lead killed Seymour, mortally wounded Wheat, and even sent a bullet into Ewell's boot. The Louisianans wavered and then retreated. Their withdrawal allowed the Federals to pour fire into the flank of the part of Trimble's brigade that was advancing. Meanwhile, Elsie's brigade, attacking over the same ground as Maxie Gregg, hadn't been able to do anything more than Gregg had earlier. When all was said and done, Ewell's attack stalled around 5 p.m., and his men fell back, and became intermingled with A.P. Hill's brigades, which were reforming after their earlier failed assault. Fitzjohn Porter had been keeping up a close eye on the fighting and was generally pleased with the way the battle had gone so far. When a messenger arrived from McClellan and asked how it was going, Porter gestured to the battlefield and said, See for yourself, we're holding our own, but it's getting hotter and hotter. A few minutes after 4 p.m., as Ewell's attack was just getting started, Porter sent a message to McClellan stating that all was well. The arrival of Slocum's 8,500-man division had eased Porter's mind, since that meant he now had about 35,000 troops on hand. 
But an hour later, Porter sent a less reassuring message to McClellan. Porter could see Longstreet's brigades forming up to the west, and more enemy troops were arriving across from his center, where Jackson's divisions were coming up. In addition, Porter already knew that D.H. Hill's division was on his right flank, though that sector was quiet at the moment. With the Confederates seemingly marshalling their strength for a last mighty effort to break his line that day, Porter began fearing the worst. His men hadn't got much rest the night before, since they had retreated from Beaver Dam Creek to Boson Swamp instead of sleeping, and now they had fought all afternoon. And his men had burned through an alarming amount of ammunition in repulsing the earlier rebel attacks. And to top it all off, Porter now realized that he wasn't holding on north of the river for the benefit of McClellan's grand attack to the south, because there was no such grand attack. And so at five o'clock, Porter sent an urgent call for reinforcements, lest the entire Fifth Corps be sacrificed for no greater gain. McClellan seemed genuinely surprised by Porter's 5 p.m. distress call. He had been so focused all day on the impending Confederate attack south of the Chickahominy that other than marching and countermarching Slocum's men, Little Mac hadn't seriously considered how to assist Porter. After Porter's reassuring 4 p.m. message, McClellan had even encouraged him to advance in pursuit of the enemy if they were withdrawing. Such a suggestion was ludicrous on the face of it, and only goes to show how out of touch McClellan was with regard to the true nature of the tactical situation north of the Chickahominy. Throughout the day, Little Mac had withdrawn into a shell of indecision, waiting for a Confederate attack south of the Chickahominy, and expecting that Porter could hold on indefinitely north of the river. He didn't make any serious effort to gather substantial reinforcements for Porter, only bringing two brigades to his headquarters that evening when it would be much too late to help Porter. While McClellan twiddled his thumbs and Porter fretted, Robert E. Lee was trying to, finally, get all of his units into the battle in order to break through the Union line and crush the enemy army before darkness put an end to the day's fighting. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Seven Days, The Emergence of Lee by Clifford Doughty. Doughty's book is probably the classic account of The Seven Days, but it's held up well for the most part, and it's worth a spot on your reading list as you explore this campaign in more detail. We have an older copy but perusing Amazon, we notice the newest edition is titled The Seven Days, The Emergence of Robert E. Lee and the Dawn of a Legend, which seems a bit heavy-handed, but there you go. You can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Just yesterday, we released members episode number 37, uh, the second installment in our Jeb Stewart story arc for the members of the Strawfoot Brigade. And thanks to Ben for joining up this past week to take part in that. And thanks to Ronald S. in Pennsylvania and Fred H. in California for their donations this past week. And thanks to Sean D. in New York City for his very generous donation, which just came in in time today to be included in this episode. Well, thanks, Sean. It's very much appreciated. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next week as we wrap up our discussion of the Battle of Gaines Mill. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.